Okay, tonight we begin the book of Job. And in beginning the book of Job, we begin the poetic books, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. It's pretty exciting. You know, it was, over, it was basically over four years to do the historical book, starting Genesis in uh, the summer of nine, uh, 2019. And the historical books have a definite feel to them because they're historical. They're generally narrative. We did navigate some names in those genealogies. Well done, worship generation. And, uh, but the historical books, you just kind of read the narrative. And as a teacher, you're just looking for like topics and application as you go. And so you want to, from a pers teaching perspective, you want to identify certain topics that pop up and not have too much redundancy and look for things that are fresh. And we did that. When we come to poetic books, they're a little bit different, you know, that because they're poetic. It's poetry, if you will. And we're going to see Jesus in Job, Psalms, Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, because Jesus said, you search the scriptures in them, you think you have life, and they are that which declare me. So we, be, we begin a whole new journey, like uh, just a completely new journey as we're going through the Bible, as we come to the poetic books, and we come to the book of Job. And in scouting the book of Job in recent weeks and pre preparing to teach it verse by verse for the first time, it's, it's been very educational for me to just get a better feel. I mean, I've been reading Job for 35 years, and I've taught topically from it and even surveyed the book, but to really go verse by verse, I've been excited, and I am excited to do that. We're going to have a great time in this book. It's going to take us till Easter. Easter, in case you don't know, is the, the 31st this year of March. It's a March Easter. And as I project Job, I'm projecting at least 12 weeks, maybe 14, to get through the book. But as we go through the book and we gather here on Tuesday nights, the, the cadence will be pretty consistent, but it, it will have some variation because the book kind of goes through different cadences. And it's like one of those 70s rock songs that goes on for seven minutes, like the Almond Brothers or something. It has all this different stuff going on. And did you get that? If you're my age, you did, maybe. But uh, so what I'm saying is in some nights we might have a couple chapters, and some nights we might have five or six. It just really depends because the way the book is laid out, we get Job in the beginning, a couple chapters we're going to do tonight. We get Job with the result of it all in the last chapter. Those are the bookends. Job the man introduced to us, how he begins, and who he is at the end of the book. But in the flow of the book, we have all the events that happened to him, which we'll read about tonight. And then his friends come, his, his three friends. And that's multiple chapters of dialogue, almost like philosophies of men discussing the main question of the book of Job is, why do bad things happen to good people? That's the overall theme. Why, do, why does God sovereignly allow bad things to happen to good people? And that's a, if you had to put one big theme over the book, that's pretty much just the book that answers it. And God is sovereign. He does have a plan for good for those who have faith. But as we go through it, we're going to see that the sequence of the three guys, they'll speak, Job will speak. The next guy will speak, Job will speak. The next guy will speak, Job will speak. And that's round one. They do it round two. Then round three, but in round three, the third guy, Zophat, he doesn't speak. Then a guy comes out of nowhere, Elihu, and and he just drops the mic for about five or six chapters. And everyone's like, whoa, who's this guy and where'd he come from? So we get him for a couple weeks. And then God says, okay, enough of that. Now I'm going to tell you the way it is. And so then God takes over the book in the latter part. And we're going to spend a couple weeks listening to what he has to say about being the creator and the one who's got a plan for his creation. And then we end up with Job, like, with a happy ending. All right? So because of this, I don't want to, on a particular night, be halfway through 
a dialogue between Job and one of these guys. We're going to let the guy speak. We're going to let Job respond. And if you know the book, you'll know that there's basically, there is application in every chapter. There's so many topics that pop up. And, and so really, again, it's different than a historical book, historical book like we had with Esther and Chronicles, but it's fresh. It's, it's going to be a really, it's going to be a good time with the Lord. We're going to grow and mature in our faith as we go through Job together. And as I said, I'm very excited. To so that's our template. Now, the book of Job is considered the oldest book of the Bible time-wise, on the timeline. Most people put Job with the same time as Father Abraham, which puts us at about 2000 B.C., 4,000 years ago. After the flood is about 2500 B.C., and the disbursement of the nations, the table of nations there in Genesis 10, the Ice Age, a couple hundred years, and then it all settles, and you have the world that Abraham grew up in, again, like 2100 B.C., when God called him. And Job is around the same time. But whereas Abraham is over by Iraq when God called him out of Ur the Chaldeans to the promised land, Job lives southeast of the Dead Sea. So he lived in what is now modern Jordan. That's, that's kind of Edom, if you know your Bible. He, he lived in that area, and he had these experiences in, where he lived in that place at that time. And he refers to God as Almighty in the same way that Abraham referred to God as Almighty. So the deeper, more intimate names that God gave of himself in progressive revelation through the covenants, like uh, Jehovah, you know, personal, that hasn't, he's not referred to that way in this book, but it's consistent with how he's referred to through as Abraham knew God in that revelation in a post-flood, post-Ice Age world. You gotta realize everyone came from the three descendants of Noah, and they had faith, and as we've mentioned, most societies have a remnant, some form of belief in an original man and woman, a flood of judgment, and that's how they have, almost every culture in their writings have an original man and a judgment with a flood. And if you study anthropology and human history, you'll see that. And regardless of what anyone's worldviews are, even the Darwinists pretty much begin with man being organized about the same time that all this begins. So there's no scribal history or written histories of events of men that lived 20,000 years ago. It all begins in the Fertile Crescent, about 4,000 B.C., all right? So it's consistent with God's narrative. And so we're early on in human history here, post-flood world, with this man, Job, who really has been a person of strength, comfort, and encouragement to Old Testament Jewish believers back in their day, and of course to the church, the body of Christ, even up to this day, because we all take comfort in the book of Job when going through trials and tribulations, or we're invited to take comfort when going through trials, tribulations, and particularly tragedies for the lessons that God taught him. In fact, in the book of James, that first book written in the New Testament time-wise, Job is referred to as an example to all believers that God has a good ending no matter what we go through. So we can really say with Job in his life that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And they're trusting God in the, in the difficult times. So that's our introduction to the book. And we'll see this theme unfolding. And we'll see Jesus very clearly in this book at different points as we go through it. So tonight we're going to get chapters 1 and 2. And we pick it up with that introduction in chapter 1, verse 1. Reread this. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. 
and seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all people in the east. And his sons would go out, they would go and feast in their houses, each one on his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them. He would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. This is our introduction to Job. Now this phrase that he was, this comes from the Holy Spirit narrative of his life that he was blameless and upright, feared God and shunned evil. That's an amazing credentials to have with the Lord describing your life. And I don't think any of us would say, oh, that's me for sure. Like, I, if the Lord says it good for you, but I wouldn't dare take that to myself. I think I know myself too well. And if you're honest with yourself, probably the same. But if the Holy Spirit wants to say that you're a woman that's blameless and upright, you fear God and shun evil, and that's the eternal kingdom perspective of you, good for you, ladies, and good for us men if it's said the same. God will say the same thing when he's engaging Satan in conversation just after this passage. And then this is affirmed again in chapter 2. So this summary of his life, his person, is three times in the first two chapters of the book of Job. So we have that repetition of consistency that this is who he is. Now, for me personally, when I think about organizing my life and how I pray and how I think, I, always, I like to go four square. Years ago, I bought a book at Orange County, John Wayne Airport, traveling. It was a business book. But one thing I really gleaned from it is these guys that wrote the book, they put everything in four squares. And God is four square in a lot of ways. You know, there's four square ministries. It, it, it's, and for me, like three bullet points or four square or a star is five tips, I, I, I think a certain way. And with a four square, you get a square and you make four things. And the most important thing is going to be your cornerstone. And then the next thing to it is the foundation. And then you go up and over. And the least important is over here at this side of your four square. And in my mind, the most important thing in your four square is the character of who you are as a woman or a man. That you're growing spiritually in the Lord. That you're being transformed from glory to glory. That you're, you're becoming more like Christ in all the experiences of life. And you're growing as a person in character. You're growing in knowledge of of the things of the Lord, spiritual things, you're maybe growing in the skill set you need for the job you have, you're making yourself more valuable for your boss or for your company, uh, you're making yourself more beneficial to society, but you're growing as a person, as personal character and growth. The next one would be family relations, so that would include if you're married or being a parent or a grandparent or taking care of your parents or how you respect your parents, but it's the family unit. So I always start with faith and family, right? That's the foundation, because Jesus is our cornerstone. So he's that first one, the personal character. Then family. Th those, are, those are the relationships that are just so binding, family relationships. God's de designed and defined family, as he has with marriage and family, and the, and the role in family. It's all there in the law. It's all there in the New Testament, right? Then you come up, and it's finances. I always put finances up here, because that's your job. And life is meant to be more than a job. When God put Adam and Eve in the garden, he gave them purpose and design to tend the garden. He said in chapter 1 that he blessed them and to be fruitful and multiply, and then he gave them stewardship and responsibility before sin in the garden of what to do, serving under him as lords and masters of human 
of humanity and planet Earth and all that's on the planet, which is amazing. That's that identity. And we learn as we go through life that if we value our job, then we keep, in a sense, we keep moving up. That's not the end game, but it's going to happen because if it's just a job and you're like the 80% of people that just view work as just a job, you lose your identity. But if you understand that your job is your purpose and your calling and you, whatever you do, you do is under the Lord, then it takes on value and, and, and you're growing and you're making yourself more valuable and you treat your customers with respect and you just grow that way. But that's finances. And we're told that like, that's how we're, well, for men particularly, we're told if a man doesn't provide for his own household, he's worse than a non-believer. See, it's important that we, we work. We find our identity and our value in working. We provide a service, and we're compensated for that service. That's how God's designed the universe. Understand? So that's the third thing. And then the fourth thing is the ultimate fruit and impact of this. So we have our walk with the Lord, our family relations. We have our finances, which is reflective of the services and goods rendered in the experience of life in the different seasons. But then what's it all mean? Like, what's it all mean when you're, when you're living this life? Are you involved in your community? Are you generous with the kingdom? And, of course, with this church, many of you are very, very generous. But the impact, like, do you inspire people? When, when, you're, when your memorial happens for your life, like Sam Coca's dad last Friday night, is the church like this completely filled? And are people singing and praising God for three hours from the legacy of your life in two languages? And since it's Pentecostal, I think it was more than that when they're singing. I wasn't quite sure, but that's not Romanian, all right? So it, and, you know, the testimony of people and the impact of a life and this man, this mountain of a man, this patriarch who fled communism, came to America, built his own house, built a family, extended his family, and all these grandkids of all these different ages, are, the grandkids are singing worship songs, including Sam's kids, and there's, there are a couple dozen of them up there. It was amazing. It was breathtaking. It was inspiring. It was unbelievable. But I thought, that wasn't just a good man. That was a great man. And I mentioned one thing that really got my attention. It sa- they said that as a Romanian immigrant, that he got a job and he helped 18 different people, Romanians coming to the country, to get a job at this particular place. That's that fourth category, your fruit and your impact on people that you gave of yourself and a church is filled with orchestra, singing and praise and all these people because that's what you give out is what you get back. Now, if you make it to 90, you, you might not be like that because you've outlived your peer group. If you pass in your 50s or 60s, the impact would be greater numerically. Richard Wormbrandt stepped into eternity very old, so his memorial wasn't that big because it was just, his impact was millions, but with Voice of the Martyrs, but that's how it goes. But the impact, now I say all this because of Job. If you notice with Job, we get his character. He's, a, he's blameless, upright, and one who fears God and shuns evil. That's his person, that's his corner right here, that's who he is. Then we're told about his family, seven sons and three daughters. He was a family man. He got up and he interceded for his children, it implies, pretty much every day. Of his great wealth, he sacrificed animals as intercessory prayer and intercessory offerings for his children, less as being entitled children coming from the richest man in the East. They would be spoiled and they would be brats, and I'd understand the value of hard work and character and grinding like he had done to set them up with a better life. They all had houses. 
and they had multiple possessions with dad being the richest man in the east. But what did he do? He labored in prayer and intercession for his family, faith, character, family. And then we see his finances. He was the richest man. And it's not so much about the wealth, but may I say the stewardship. To whom much is given, much is required. And to him or her who has, more will be given. Livestock is a measure of wealth for most of Africa to this day and a lot of Asia. You can still measure wealth by livestock. Livestock has value for a lot of different reasons. India, I would say livestock has value, commodity value, more than a lot of things for most of the world still to this day, particularly in agricultural societies. There's a measure of his wealth, all of this. So we see his wealth. He, in other words, he was faithful and diligent with his wealth, and in the wealth he produced, he was constantly sacrificing it on behalf of interceding to his children, and he clearly had a strong relationship with the Lord because he's a just, upright man, and blameless, shunned evil before the Lord. So we see he was a faithful steward. It's not the quantity of the wealth, but the faithfulness of his wealth that I want to point out here. And then the fourth thing, it says he was the greatest of all the people in the East. That's that memorial with a packed out church. That's, that's, he is the greatest of all the people. This is the Holy Spirit talking. His presence, he tilted the room, but we know that he would have been a man of compassion and humility because how he handles adversity reveals to us who he really is. He, wasn't, he wouldn't have been aloof and condescending. He was a man, well, we'll see it in a moment. He was the greatest He was a man of reputation. And he was a man not just of reputation for wealth, but clearly he was a man of reputation for character and integrity. So that's that four square that I I think this way. This is how I think when I pray. When I review my goals daily, who I am in 2024 and who I want to be in 2029, all the way to 2041 when I'm 80, I think in this template. This is the first of two templates I have. Character, family, finances, impact on people for the kingdom. I couldn't help but notice it right away. So as we go forward in this story, we realize this guy is an amazing human being. He's the complete package. And we say, all right, he's, 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 he's that guy, and we respect that. He's that. She's that woman, and we respect her, if you follow me. This, this human being didn't demand respect, but their presence and their life naturally brought it. Now we read on. He's got a good life, and he doesn't take it for granted, and the text will reveal it. Now in verse 6, we read this. Okay, so there was a man, verse 1, but now in verse 6, there was a day. And the irony of this phrase, there was a day, is it's in eternity, in the eternal realm. So the phrasing is very uh, poetic again. There was a day. It's a different dimension. So I don't even know how you measure a day, but there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan, the adversary, also came among them. And this is where we get the idea where people believe the sons of God is a reference to angels, which are fallen angels. Angels are fallen angels. At any rate, Satan comes before the throne of God with access at this point. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on earth, 
a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not lay hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So this sets in motion the events that take place in chapter 2 and all the discussions and dialogues and philosophies and theorizing that takes us all the way to the end of the book. Why bad things happen to good people. And in this case, we see the sovereignty of God. God's allowing it, and he's displaying his servant Job as a testimony that the people of faith, even before the, probably before the Mosaic Covenant, and certainly before the clarity of the new covenant with faith in Jesus Christ, that the just shall always live by faith. By faith, Abraham did this. By faith, Abel offered up a more excellent sacrifice. By faith, Noah built an ark, moving with godly fear for the saving of his household. It's always been about faith, and this really is a book about faith. And we just talked about this Saturday night. The, the healthy faith, the faith of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, where you know God can deliver you, you believe God has the power to deliver you, but you also know that even if he doesn't, that your life is sovereignly in his hands, and you're going to trust the Lord. It's the mature faith. It's the faith that says all things are working together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. It's a faith that says God is bigger than that which I fear the most. And that's what the book is going to teach us. I've said this many times, and I'll continue to say it till the day of the Lord. Life is filled with testings, trials, tribulations, and tragedies. And there's just no way to get to 80, let alone 100, and not face these things. The journey of life guarantees everyone you love is going to step into eternity before you, beside you, or after you. We're like all in an airport waiting for our flight to go to eternity. And there's just no way around that. You can't defeat death and the grave apart from faith in Jesus. And even so, we age and must stare it down with the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep and comes for the sheep. It's the great reality. Some people never like to think about these realities. Being in ministry, they come up quite often as a minister of the gospel. Those who dedicate their lives to ministry, they find that this is just the human experience. These things move us toward eternity. But if we're living in time, they frustrate us. But if our heart is set, if our treasures are in heaven where Jesus said to store up our treasures, then we get through it. We navigate it. In other words, particularly in this passage we just read, there's a spiritual force. There's a spiritual factor. There's a spiritual battle. There's an eternal purpose behind the events in your life. Nothing is random in our lives. Everything is designed purpose. And is under the sovereignty of God. When the doctor who misdiagnosed my wife at full term sent us home the last week of December saying our baby was fine when I felt our baby was not fine. It was our first baby, so we don't know. First time parents, you know what I'm talking about here. And I, we just didn't feel good about it. We said, oh, you can do this. And we were Medi-Cal at the time. We were just poor people, you know, with the mercy of random doctors. And, and, and they sent us home. As it turned out, when we lost our son... It, that doctor delivered our son. Just the way the watch went, he had to deliver our son who had passed in the womb. Then we had the follow-up appointment with that doctor about six weeks later, 
And he could, Jennifer and I sat in that room. I can totally remember it, right down there in San Diego at that hospital. We sat in that room, and he couldn't look me in the eyes. I'll never forget. He, he never looked, he couldn't look at us. He's like, he said, we did tests, we did an autopsy, we did all this. And, you know, there's some couple cases, maybe 10 this year, that were similar. And he's like, you know, it, it was one in a million. And he couldn't look at me. And I, and I said, and many of you heard me tell the story. I said, listen, Doc, our God's bigger than one in a million. Yeah, we're trusting Jesus to raise us from the grave. He's bigger than your one in a million. It's not about you. You know, it's not about him misdiagnosing us and sending us home. It's not about him having to deliver our son. That's between him and the Lord or having to look us, not be able to look us in the eyes and say it was one in a million. God is bigger than one in a million. That's what the book of Job tells us. And that's what life tells us for the women and men of faith. There's no randomness. There's no faith, you know. We're not like communists and say, oh, it's the fate, if the fate wills. No, we are, we are believers in Jesus Christ, if you are. And we know that everything filters through from his throne room into our life. He's bigger than, he's bigger than government mandates. He's bigger than bad decisions. We can, he's bigger than that. He's bigger than the bully bank. We are trusting him to raise us from the grave. And don't ever forget that, because Job was too. And we'll see that as we go through this book. God is in control. And the most beautiful testimony is not that you won something and you gave God the glory. The most beautiful testimony is that you lost something and you give God the glory. Oh, we can almost go home right now. That is the greatest testimony. When people see you lose something and you give God the glory. Anyone can praise the Lord when they win the college football championship or something, right? Like, you know what I'm saying? You win the Daytona 500, I thank the good Lord. Like, anyone can do that. Let's see how you handle trials, testings, tribulations, and tragedy. And let's see your faith on display. So that it's a, God's got it, and God's over it, and that's that, and that's the way it is. Now we read on verse 13. Now there was a day. So here comes another day, but this is a day in time, space, and matter. And it's just that day, and I've seen some of these days, and I've ministered in these days, and they're out there. They're out there. They're in the day planner. They're on the calendar. They're, it's just it's the human experience. You can't fear this day, but you just know they're, they're out there. Now, there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabaeans raided them and took them away. Indeed, they've killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another another came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven, burned up the sheep and the servants, and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels, and took them away, yes, and killed the servants and with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in your oldest brother's house, and suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are all dead. I alone have escaped to tell you. Now, you notice in this sequence, it's four things. It's just, so it's his children that he loves. It's all of his wealth. In one day, he, he lost it all. In one day, he lost, he, he lost it all. And 
it's no randomness because you see the sequence that one person's explaining what happened, then another one shows up, and in the disasters, his servants, his employees that he loved, these people that he cared about, they, were, they died as well. You, you almost lose that in the story. Like these were his people that he loved working with. They, he trusted them. They worked for him. They were slain by criminals. You talk about an injustice. Criminals came and killed his employees. And yet in each case, one person could come and give the report. So he had the four voices of things that you don't want to hear, and they came one after another, after another, after another. And you would have been in shock with the first bit of news in his compound, 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 and just the last one being your children. And you would just be in shock. Shock's an shock's a, a interesting thing. We have some people here in the, that work in the medical field. Shock is a very strange thing. It's hard to understand. But since we're not designed for death, I've watched people try and grapple with death in the moment of death, particularly with unexpected death. And it's just so, like, there's nothing that prepares us for it. it it's just, it's so final, and it, it just, it hits you in waves, and you just can't even believe, like, it's really happening. It's like a, well, I kind of go back to when we lost our son, Jesse, where I remember most when the doctor said our, our baby was dead, I looked at the clock, and it was 1210 in the morning, so it was January 1st. That's how the new year began. I thought, well, this is how my year begins. I always remember when I thought that moment. And everything that the doctor said after that was almost like he's speaking a different language, other than that Jennifer was at risk. So I kind of paid attention to what was going to happen next. And then it was interesting because to me it almost went black and white. It, it almost went black and white. It just, it, it, like the colors changed, and I was in shock. And by 4 in the morning I'm in the hospital cafeteria. No one else is in there. I'm in this big cafeteria by myself, and I'm trying to grasp everything, and it's all going black and white, and I'm like in shock. And then as Pastor Brian showed up and Pastor Gaylord and, and all this stuff, and just the doctors were coming and they're inducing labor and it, it all just seemed like shock. You know, when I'm reading the Psalms tour the next night, it's 40 hours of labor. It just all seemed like shock. It didn't even seem real. Well, in fact, it would seem so unnatural that I, I was still hoping that somehow my son would be born alive. But he wasn't. He, born, he was born, he was dead. And holding my son in my arms and dedicating him to the Lord on January 2nd, just, there's a 1989, there was such a finality to it, and, but it was all like shock. None of it seemed real. The memorial didn't seem real. Pastor Chuck's here. It didn't, like, and that's how it works. And having ministered to people that have lost children, it just, I remember being with Brian Jameson when he found out the news that his daughter had a severe cancerous brain tumor, and he'd lost family members to cancer. I remember going to Chalk Children's Hospital and going upstairs. I'm like, well, I don't even know what to say. And I sat down with Brian and he just looked at me and started sobbing. And, and, and he's like, it doesn't even seem real. But he knew what the next 11 months would involve, and it was real. That's how it is. So we, put our, we can understand that for Job, it's just shocking. It's stunning. How do you even? They say, particularly in first responders, this is where they train. When I went to Red Cross training for emergency situations, you know, earthquakes, riot stuff like that they teach you as a citizen emergency response team cert and these things they teach you repetition 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 what to do when things go wrong so you go on autopilot okay this is what we're going to do and we all remember when the tsunami back in 2006 it hit 
you know, all those parts of the world and killed like 300,000 plus people. We also have videos of people just standing there with a tsunami coming at them. The tide went out and they just stood there. They, they went into shock. That's what they did. Some people got out, you know, they got out, they did certain things. And first responders will tell you this, like people go into shock, like 9-11, these events. Job had to have been in shock. But here's what's interesting about being in shock and being in trauma is you, you, that moment you revert to really who you are. And if you're auto-trained, like, this is what we're going to do. There's an active shooter. This is what we do with an active shooter. We, we, we close the classrooms. We do this. We, you, you do certain things. We had a thing here a couple of years ago we weren't sure about. And Jennifer, she was the first responder for an active shooter at Calvary School. So she said, hey, youth are in the gym. Close the doors. Do this. Call the police. Get Anthony here. Get Alex here and Garrett, right? It was an unusual situation after service at, like, 930 at night. We had youth in the gym. But Jennifer reverted everything. The ladies responded. Jacqueline Frisbee, they, they knew what to do. They filmed the guy. They, it, was, it was amazing what they did. The guys were like, uh, I mean, I don't mean to embarrass the guys, but the ladies handled it better than the guys did. But they went right back to their training. They kicked in what they were trained to do. So think about Job now. This happens. What's this man going to do when he gets this news? What We're going to find out. Like, What does this man do when he's been told in a matter of like, let's just say an hour or, or less, it would seem maybe less, what, who is this man? This man who's just and upright, shuns evil and fears God. Well, this is who he is. Verse 20, then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground and worshiped. That's who he is, body of Christ. He tore his robe, shaved his head, he fell to the ground and he worshiped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall I return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, the narrative now of the Holy Spirit, and in all this, Job did not sin, nor charge, charge God with wrong. It's like that song, you know, blessed be your name. Blessed be your name. You know, I got to say, and I've said this publicly from the pulpit, whenever someone plays that song, I'm like, it's worth singing, but I'm not picking it for my song set. That's a hard song to sing. It was written by a, a band from South Africa. It, it's, it, it's, it's okay if any of our worship leaders play it. I'll sing it because it is a song of faith. But like, it, you know, in the land that was plentiful, I like that part. But, you know, where the streams of abundant flow. But when it gets to those other chords, I'm like, ah, I don't like that. But uh, it's still, it's a triumphant song of praise and faith of worshiping the Lord. Crisis doesn't make the woman crisis reveals the woman crisis doesn't make the man crisis reveals the man and in this moment this is who this man is the man that had more wealth than anyone in his time zone and loses it all the man who had the christmas card with 10 kids in it to send to all of his friends and family if you will how blessed he is that man lost it all but in losing it all, we realize in his response that he was living for eternity. This is a man of faith. This is a man of maturity. This is a man of eternity. He knows that he came from the dust and to the dust he'll return. He knows that you start out naked with someone taking care of you and changing your diapers. And he knows if you live long enough, you'll end naked with someone changing your diapers. This is a man that knows the human journey. This is a man that's able to handle large sums of wealth because they don't own him. He owns them, and the Lord owns it all. In the end, the Lord did own it all, and the Lord took it all. And thus he said, the Lord made me who I am, and the Lord took what, I, what he gave me. He gave me my children, 
He gave me my wealth. And on this day, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Such profound maturity. Can't we agree? Can we say yes and amen? Yeah. And in, in, the, in, the, in the cruxable of crisis, we will find out what we, what we have there. And people will watch us to see what we have there. But there's more in chapters 1 and 2, so we get a little bit more before we call it tonight. Chapter 2 is a short chapter, but it's, it's the additional thought process, and it, it, it pours on even a little more. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from, from where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil, and still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incite me against him to destroy him without cause. So Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, yes, all that a man has will give for his life, but stretch out your hand now, touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took for himself a potsherd with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of ashes. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So in both sequences where Job loses everything or is afflicted by the devil himself, that in both cases we're told he didn't sin. That the narrative tells us that. So we establish that right away. And that in both cases he reflects a, a perspective of spiritual and eternal and maturity. God was bragging about Job. You know, God made man for his own good pleasure and to be in fellowship and relationship with him. And that's what the devil really is after. He, he's after breaking that fellowship. In the garden when Adam and Eve sinned, it broke the fellowship. And Jesus restores the fellowship. And as the devil attacks us from day to day with various things, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and the lust of the flesh, he wants to break the fellowship. It's interesting that he's one of those, peop one of those entities, beings, if you will, so powerful, once a glorious, beautiful one in God's presence, but he wants to, it's those people that, they just want you to be unhappy. Like, they're, 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 they're happy if you're unhappy. That's the devil. He, he doesn't want God to have joy with his created being in his own image, humanity. And if he can destroy that, he feels a sense of accomplishment in ruining things for God who's the creator, and we know that Satan is created, not the creator. So in this part of the story that sets us up for the entire book, he's certain that if you touch his body, Job's body, he'll curse God. But Job did not. We know that. But now, after all this, because we say, what do we say about being older? It, you want your good health, because you can't enjoy anything if you don't have good health. And now he's lost his good health. He's in physical pain, excruciating pain. And then his wife says something she shouldn't say. I don't even know what to think of that one, other than his response. And what he says is something that we'd want to think 
I'd like to think this would be our perspective. Shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? That's a mark of maturity of faith. God's, we like the blessings, but you know, we don't like the adversity. But there's lessons in both. There's profound lessons in both. And more often than not, we learn more from failure and losing than we do from winning and success. And suffering teaches us things. When I go back to my bad back five years ago, I'd never had that much pain in my entire life. And it was, it was horrible. My, my wife drove me to different places. To, it, I was in excruciating pain. I had that sciatica nerve pain going all the way down my leg to my calf, and it was a screamer. And I, it'd wake me up. I'd pass out from it, and then it'd wake me up. And I'd walk around the neighborhood just trying to walk it out, and I was in excruciating pain, begging for mercy. And once I was finally turned the corner on it, I cannot tell you, it changed my whole life. Whenever I hear of anyone being in severe pain, I immediately have empathy. If I heard that someone was smoking weed, cannabis, to, to ease pain or whatever, or taking, you know, narcotics because they got addicted to narcotics because they had severe pain, I'd be like, I don't know, man. Like, how's that work? But let me tell you, when I was walking in the neighborhood, my legs screaming, I was like, I can see why people are smoking weed right now. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, if that's the only way out of this pain, man. I don't want to go there, but like, Listen, when you have severe pain, all you think of is relief from severe pain. Yes and amen. Speak, Lord, your servant hears. Change my whole perspective on, on everything regarding people in pain and suffering from pain. See, you got to learn that. Will we not accept blessings from the Lord? We accept the blessings. We need to accept adversity and learn from it and grow from it. What did Paul say about finances? I've learned to abound and I've learned to abase. And I've learned I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That in all these things that life, you know, testings, trials, tribulations, and tragedy, there's a lesson. And, and we want to be able to come to a place where we praise the Lord for his goodness, but we praise him in adversity. That's the mark of maturity. Now we close out the chapter. Verse 11. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that come upon him, each one came from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite. Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite, for they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with him to comfort him. And when they raised their eyes from afar and did not recognize him, they lifted their voices and wept. And each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward the heaven. So they sat down with him on the ground. Seven days and seven nights, no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief was very great." I like these verses. They're important because they do show us that these three friends had good intentions. God rebukes their counsel later on in the end of the book. So as we go through their counsel, there might be things they say that are true philosophically or human experience. But as a whole, the things they said, God rebukes their counsel. So we need to establish that. They started out well. And it's been, it's been said by many people, if they just stayed silent, it might have ended up well. But we don't stay silent, do we? we? We have opinions. We have opinions about everything, don't we? And we have opinions of other people's calamities. We do. We all do. No matter what the calamity is, we have an opinion. And sometimes it's a condescending or judgmental opinion. And so I would just end tonight by saying, listen, it rains on the just and the unjust. And God is good to the just and the unjust. And we really want to come to the place 
we're gracious and merciful in how we see other people in their testings, afflictions, and heartaches, because we know that could be us, and we know that Jesus has mercy on those who go through these things, right? We want to be the good comforters. Yes, and amen.